Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Uh, we've got a little bit more sobering story on our hands today. Um, this episode may go a little longer than some of the others, and if it does, it's only because I don't want to leave too many stones unturned, just because this is a, like I said, a sobering story. It's an important story, one that we should be able to talk through as believers. Uh, this is a story that opponents of Christianity will often bring up to try to disprove the the goodness or the graciousness of God. And so uh, I think it's important for us as we think about it for ourselves to be able to know what we can believe about God, even in the midst of this story. And I think it's also really important that we don't skip over this story when we are teaching kids as well. One, because it's in the scripture and we value all of scripture. We believe it's all in God's inspired word. But also if the first time they hear hard stories from the Bible is from an opponent of Christianity, then that's going to be kind of the framework that they see these stories through. So for us to be able to go through it, even though it's tough, is really important just for developing the framework of our kids. And it's important for our framework as well. I won't keep you in suspense any longer. The story is the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. So that's where we'll be. It's in verses 1 through 11. For some of you, this may be a pretty familiar story. For some of you, this may not be terribly familiar. And when you read it, I think you'll find it a little bit, um, a little difficult. Uh, I know that reading through it, for me, um, there's just no way around it. I'll just be upfront. There's no way around it. This is a, a difficult story for us to swallow with the character that we know is true of God and seeing um, some things that we don't normally see in the New Testament, especially uh, in the lives of believers. So uh, I'm going to read through this story, just give a little bit of explanation. Uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to lay out kind of the facts of the story so that we can focus on what we know for sure and not worry about the what ifs. Then I want to talk about some things that we should not apply from this story so that we don't misapply God's word or misunderstand who God is from his word, but that we take an opportunity to fully understand the story best we can. Um, I doubt that any of us will feel just 100% settled after reading it. Uh, but then I want to end by talking about the things we should apply because, uh, again, this is God's word. We believe that if it's the story is in God's word, that it's important and that he authored it. And we know that he did that for our good and for our sake. So we don't want to um, waste the opportunity to apply God's word, uh, even when it's a story that's a little tougher to apply sometimes. So without further ado, I'm going to start reading in verse one. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the uh, ending of chapter four that we get right before this um, from 32 through 37, it basically talks about a lot of people in the community who were selling things that belonged to them and they held everything in common. Um, they were with one heart and soul, it says in verse 32. And then uh, that section ends with a, dis- a description of a man named Joseph called Barnabas who sold uh, his field and he gave all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's kind of what's going on uh, in the background. And then we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, like Joseph slash Barnabas, uh, sold a piece of property. However, they did not give all of the proceeds. But we are led to believe that they represented it as all of the proceeds. That is kind of the, the tone of it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then... Basically, when it's brought out, uh, Ananias is condemned and he dies. Sapphira comes in. Uh, Same thing happens. She kind of holds up the lie to Peter. He says, well, you're the same people who buried your husband are going to bury you. She dies as well. And uh, I guess, understandably, the people are are fearful. So, again, I don't think it's tough. I don't think I have to overexplain why this passage is difficult for us. I think it's especially difficult just given the the context. So as we talk about this, I'm going to start kind of laying out, these are kind of the facts, the things that are most likely true in this story. So we can kind of root out any of the, well, maybe this, maybe that. So first is they were most likely believers. They were most likely believers. The the context of this uh, little epic gives us the impression that they were likely believers believers because it's talking about the church and yeah there's a chapter division remember those chapter divisions are all uh divisions that came later on they were not in the original writings so these would have been read as stories without you know uh, chapters or verses um just one story letter so even though we're like well it's you know a different chapter it wasn't a different chapter when it was written or when it was originally read those have been kind of added for our benefit so the fact that this this part of the book is talking about believers being in one heart and soul um, that it's talking about Joseph and how, what he did. And then it transitions to them. Um, We, we, I think are most likely to believe that they're believers. It's the most likely option you may notice. And if you're in the ESV, it says the first word is, but in chapter one or in chapter five, verse one, Um, other versions may have a different, um, so this is the Greek word de, which is a uh, a conjunction. And unlike English conjunctions, Greek conjunctions tend to have a little bit more um, wide use. So de can mean but, it can mean and, um, it can mean so that, it can mean a lot of different things. Um, but generally, um, whenever you have words like this in the Greek text, the people who are doing the translation, they're going to look at uh, the surrounding context and decide how they believe the um, the word is being used. And I think it's pretty generally accepted that this is being used as an adversative, which um, would be translated in English, but so an adversative kind of in opposition to or different from. And 
you could probably make the argument that it's adversative or it's that in, it's in opposition to the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul in verse 32, you could say. And then here's an example of some people who weren't. However, given the contrast between the story of Joseph and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's most likely an adversative to that little part of the of the paragraph paragraph they're most likely being shown in opposition to what joseph did so joseph did it he did it um out of a good heart he sold a field and he gave all the money and he laid it at the apostles feet and it was for good motives but then we see that ananias and sapphira um, do it with deception so that's why i say they're most likely believers we we obviously don't know we talked about Last week, how judging whether or not a person is a true believer is really not our job. That's only between, uh, that's all really only in the mind of the Lord. Um, but I would say it's most likely they're believers. Okay, so that's the first thing that we should read this with. Second, is that they clearly lied. Um, and we understand that from how Peter reacts. So when he brings the money and lays it, it he says he only brought a part of it. And he doesn't, we don't get any sort of uh, dialogue from Ananias here, but Peter immediately recognizes this as not the full amount. And I think it's probably most likely that Peter discerned this through the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't, I mean, they hid the the proceeds of the piece of property and only brought part of it. You would think Ananias and Sapphira were probably the only ones who actually knew how much they received for it. But it seems that Peter has discerned through the Holy Spirit that they had not brought all of the money. And then we see that kind of confirmed when Sapphira comes back in and Peter says, hey, this is the amount we got. Is this how much you sold the land for? And she says, yes. And then he says that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. So I think it's pretty clear that they lied. Um, that may not be terribly obscure, but it's important for us to know that um, Peter is not judging him for bringing only a part of what they earned. And we really see that uh, in a little bit later in this uh, in this dialogue that um, in verse four, he says, did it while it was unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal? So it's clear that Peter wasn't um, compelling uh, him to do this or even saying he couldn't keep part of it. But it's clear from the way Peter reacts that it was presented as the full amount. So they did. I think it's pretty clear they lied to the apostles and what Peter says, they lied to the Holy Spirit, not just to him. Uh, the third fact, and I got a little bit ahead of myself, but they weren't compelled by the apostles to sell the land or even to bring all the money. And we, again, we see that in verse four, he says, while it was unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Um, there's nothing in that previous paragraph in verse or in chapter four that leads us to believe that uh, anyone was compelled to sell what they had. It seems like that was just what they wanted to do. They wanted to contribute to the church. They wanted to contribute to the needs of others. And it wasn't something that uh, everybody who came in was compelled to do. And that is something that sometimes commentators will kind of pose as a possibility. Maybe they were forced to, they compare it to this community called the Qumran community. You may be familiar with um, the the scrolls that they found in Qumran um, not all that long ago. There was a community there of people, and it was kind of you had to give up everything to be a part of that community. Uh, we don't see any indication of that in the scripture. And Peter says pretty bluntly, um, we didn't make you do this, so why'd you, why'd you have to do it this way? 
So they were not compelled by the apostles. Um, they both lied also in separate incidents. That is another, uh, another fact that we have. Um, it says they conspired together there in verse 1. Um, it says they, that Ananias sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. So they conspired. So Ananias, was, it was clearly um, understood that he was lying, as we see what Peter says to him. And then we get an explicit lie from Sapphira that, yes, it was it this much. She said, yep, it was that much, no more. And so they both lied in separate incidents. It wasn't an accident. Um, it seems very purposeful that they had planned it out. They planned to lie, um, that it was a clear uh, way to, to deceive. And then the last fact that I want to hone in on is that their deaths were supernatural. Um, there can be a temptation when we read this to say, oh, maybe they both got so scared because they've been found out that they both died of heart attacks in separate incidents. Uh, that is possible. I would say it is unlikely. And even if they did happen to both die of heart attacks or some other sort of um, fright-based uh, death, that I think even if that was true is still a means of supernatural judgment. And I think we can understand based on a couple of things. One, just the most base kind of natural observation is just the odds. What are the odds that two people would die of fright in two incidences so close to one another? Uh, so we have that. Um, but I think that when we factor in the both of the times after the people have died, in verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard it. Uh, verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The fact that they were reacting in fear makes it makes you think they were probably thinking that super, something supernatural happened, that they were, um, they were judged, that judgment was brought on them, and that's what caused the fear. And then uh, when Peter, but before, Anna, or before Sapphira dies, he says, behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then she dies. So he kind of already knows seemingly what the judgment is going to be. Um, we don't see Peter in any way um, kind of, I guess, act in a way or produce some sort of like, and now I kill you or anything like that, or that he's calling out in judgment. It seems like the judgment is purely divine, that Peter uh, perceives what the Lord has decided and what he has chosen for judgment. Uh, but that it wasn't, it doesn't seem like it was Peter's choice. It just seems like he perceived what uh, the Lord had decided to do. So uh, I think it's important that we read this knowing their deaths were supernatural. Um, and all these facts don't necessarily make the story easier to read in a vacuum. It doesn't make, it's not like, oh, these five facts make this so much easier for me. Um, again, I still think this is a challenging passage to read because we think uh, we love to think of the love and the grace of God. And those are absolutely true of him. Uh, it's a little harder for us to think about the judgment of God. And I think it's especially hard for us to think about the judgment of God when it's um, within the church within. Um, I mean, like I said, they most likely these people were believers and a part of the church. So it kind of leads us to ask the question, well, if this can happen to them, then what's to keep it to happening from happening to really anybody in the church. And I think that's kind of the question that that hangs in the air um, when we read this story. So I want to move into this uh, section of discussing what we should not apply from this story. So those are kind of the facts. What should we not apply from this story? 
Um, I think it's important for us to not make sweeping broad strokes when we try to apply the scripture. And we have to take into account the whole the whole body of scripture. Like we have to think it's not Acts 4.32 through Acts 5.11 is not the entirety of scripture. That's not all we know about God. It's not all we know about how uh, God confronts sin. And so we want to know, um, because we believe all scripture is profitable, what is it that we're to profit from this? And so one way to figure that out is to start by kind of parsing out what should we just go ahead and not assume that is being taught from this story. So the first thing we should not apply from this story is the expectation that deception or seeking wealth and acclaim will lead to immediate death. Let's get down to brass tacks on what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They lied so that they could have wealth and that they could have acclaim. That's ultimately what happened. Um, you could talk about how much, you could talk about whatever else. That's at the end of the day, what happened. They lied so they could have more money and they could have a better rep- reputation. Um, like it says at the end of chapter four, um, there's there's this acclaim that comes to Joseph for selling his field and for laying it all at the apostles' feet. He gets a mention, right? So this is probably something that was known throughout this church that, hey, Joseph did this. It doesn't seem like Joseph's the only one. Um, but the difference is that Joseph, it seems, did this out of a heart to serve the church and that the others were also doing it out of a heart to serve the church, not out of a heart to get a claim and certainly not wealth since he's giving up all of his wealth. Um, there is certainly uh, plenty, There are certainly plenty of times when we do something out of a good motive and it gets recognized and it is praised. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong for praising something, somebody for something they've done, as long as ultimately we recognize that that glory belongs to God. But we can praise somebody for, hey, uh, I'm praising you for being faithful to what God's calling you to. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if you do something in a good heart and somebody praises you for it, you don't have to say, no, 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 please don't praise me. I wasn't doing it for myself. Um, it's, it's okay to, to do that. We want to encourage good character qualities in one another. Um, but Ananias and Sapphira were acting out of what looks like an ability to kind of count themselves among these really generous people like Joseph without fully being as generous as them. They wanted it to look like they'd given everything they owned, but they actually kept some for themselves. And they lied about it. And ultimately, that wealth they kept was probably an indication that they didn't fully trust the Lord. And also just a, another another opportunity of the many in Scripture to look at the pitfalls of chasing wealth. Um, we see it time and time again. Um, Jesus says it's harder, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. Because wealth can be um, just something that really sucks all our attention and uh, our love and our passion. And uh, we see in the, the rich young man, um, how he's unwilling to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. Um, there's just lots of, lots of examples in the scripture of when money is an impediment to, to faith. And we see that here with Ananias and Sapphira. So the thing we are not applying, we kind of apply those things I just mentioned, probably should have waited for that. So it's not as confusing, but what we should not apply is that thinking that anytime we act out of deception, anytime we um, act in uh, a greedy way, anytime that we are seeking a claim that does not belong to us, that it will lead to immediate death. Okay, we we probably easily, each one of us probably think of a dozen examples of each of those three, and here we are. We're still here. Um, and I think this is a good time to 
discuss kind of this interesting epic in scripture, I guess that you would call it uh, an interesting time that we see in the church. Um, so there are people who will say the church today is totally wrong because it looks nothing like the Acts church. There are people who will say uh, we shouldn't expect our church to look anything like the Acts church because this was a really special age. Um, I'm very hesitant to make black and white statements on either end of that. Though I will say there are things that happen in Acts, especially early in Acts, that are not what we would consider normative. So I say normative, not normal. So normal is adhering to norms. Normative is more kind of adhering to our perception of norms or our perception of what is normal. Um, This is not normative in that it does not really line up with what we have experienced in our lives. We do not know a bunch of people who have lied and then been immediately struck dead. We don't know a bunch of people who have sought wealth and were immediately struck dead. In fact, we've seen a lot of people who have chased those things and have lived very long lives. Um, So while this is normal in that it fits into who God is, I mean, God is a God, he has the right to bring judgment. Um, So we can't say this is totally outside of God's character. Uh, But we can say this is not the normative thing that we experience. And I say that cautiously because any of these things that we don't consider normative or that things that we would normally see happen um, doesn't mean they can't happen. And we need to be, I think, respectful of that and not put God uh, in a box that we just really cleanly understand and expect he only acts within uh, that, that list of actions we expect from him. So, uh, but we should not expect or fear rather um, that anytime we lie, that we are greedy, that we are self-serving, that God is immediately going to strike us dead. You could um, probably try to teach that to your kids to scare them into not lying, but I guarantee you that the therapy is going to be a lot more expensive than just letting them uh, work on it on their own and teaching them not to lie for the good of the, to honor the Lord and to do the right thing. I think that's going to be a lot cheaper down the line. Um, I would, I would advise against that. It may work for a time, but you have to pay for it later. So that's the first thing we should not apply is the expectation or fear that God is going to strike us down if we sin in these ways. Um, I don't think that we have to fear that. So the second thing that we should not apply from this story is that their sin was any worse than ours. So we talked about those three sins, deception, seeking wealth, and seeking acclaim. We should not expect that these were spectacular sinners and that we have nothing in common with them. Like I said, we can probably each think of a dozen examples right off the top of our head of each of those. When we've lied, when we've sought wealth or we were greedy and where we've sought acclaim or praise from others. Um, all of us could easily have fallen into the same trap that Ananias and Sapphira did because end of the day, we're sinful beings. So we shouldn't take this as a, well, these were especially bad sinners and that's why um, they died. Um, that That has a little bit of pride to it, which also not a good thing to practice. So let's recognize that Ananias and Sapphira were people that were not spectacular sinners. They they sinned and it was in a crucial time in church history um, and that it was obviously very, uh, very bad thing that they did. But let's not think that they were any worse than, than we are. Let's not get on our high horse and think that something like that couldn't have happened to us too. And the third thing we should not apply from this story is that God is not gracious and good. Um, we 
like I said, we've got to look at the whole corpus of scripture, all of the scripture to see who is God, um, who is he to us? What has he done for us? How does he interact with us? We see here that he acts in judgment in a way that is unusual in the whole of scripture. Um, but let's not use that as an opportunity. Uh, and some will, some, especially those outside the faith, will use this as an opportunity to say, you serve uh, a God who is not good. Um, that is not gracious. Look at this story. Let's not um, have tunnel vision and see this story and think that even though it's hard to understand fully everything that's going on, that it means that God isn't gracious or good. Um, just like we could think of dozens of examples of when we acted in sin, on the other side of those incidences is when we have an opportunity to see that God is gracious and that God is good. Because even in those moments where we can clearly see our own sin in ways that are detrimental to uh, his glory, to ourselves, even to um, our communities, that God responds in grace. Um, and that ultimately that grace was seen in Jesus' death uh, on the cross and his resurrection, that um, God made a way for us to be with him eternally. Um, it's important that we don't take this as a this snapshot and say, oh, this is the, all the proof we need. God is not gracious or good. I've experienced God's graciousness and goodness uh, in my life uh, a hundredfold, uh, more than this story could make me question his goodness and his grace. And I hope that you have recognized that in your life as well, that God's, God's grace is abundant. And let's be real. We should be really grateful that this is not how God always acts because we deserve nothing less than what Ananias and Sapphira got. Our sin deserves nothing less than immediate death. That's what we have earned through our actions is immediate death. But by God's grace, even before um, we believed in him, he didn't, strike us dead. And that's all only because of his grace. Now, even now that we've professed faith in Christ, only because of grace that Jesus work can cover our sins. So let's not think, oh, this is an example of why God is not gracious and good. Let's remember what scripture teaches us, what we've experienced in our own lives of how God is gracious and good. So now let's move on. All right. We know what not to do. Let's talk about what we should do. How should we apply this story. So the first thing I think, and I think this is really clear from the text, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin really seriously. Um, like I said, there, there are ways in which the early church did not, does not fully mirror the church that we experience today. And again, I'm, I'm slow to say it is a totally different uh, a totally different set of circumstances than we're in today. I think there are clearly a lot of differences between the early church and what we experience today. And that that's not necessarily bad. I don't think we have to 100% mirror the early church in order to be um, acting like God would want us to. But let's be clear that God takes sin ser as seriously, uh, as seriously now as he did then. Um, this new community uh, that we're reading about in Acts 4 and 5, it's a brand new um, they're obviously going through this really special, spectacular time um, because this is the this is the first church, like this is the first gathering of believers. And by this point in Acts, we see that there's probably about five thousand um, numbered amongst this church. Um, we can imagine the horrible things that could have happened if uh, Ananias and Sapphira's actions had started to spread throughout this community. Um, and we can see the detriment that would have come from people lying, seeking a claim, and seeking wealth. Um, because that's kind of the opposite of what they were doing. 
And it could have become a, an epidemic of sorts where uh, lots of people were trying to do this. And that may be a reason, and I'm, I'm not going to try to speak for God's reasoning why here and why not somewhere else, but this could have been a reason that he chose to, um, to strike them down during that time and so that he could protect his church in this era. I think that's a, a very realistic possibility. At the end of the day, God is God. He can do what he wants. I don't have to be able to explain his actions for them to be right. But I think that's something that's reasonable for us to um, think is a possibility. But let's not think that these uh, these qualities, this deception, this seeking of wealth, this seeking of acclaim, isn't something that can become pervasive in our churches today and be incredibly harmful as well. Let's not think that only this the early Acts church could have been affected by this. A, we are already affected by these things. You can see it um, in on the news all the time. Some pastor's embezzling, some pastor is doing something that elevated him at the cost of his, uh, at the cost of his congregation. Somebody did something wrong, lied about it. We see it all the time. We have so much information available to us. Um, let's not think that we're above that, that it doesn't affect our communities. These things affect our communities and they can affect them in t- ways that are just absolutely fracturing. Um, God takes that sin seriously. We should take it seriously too. Um, we should not be, um, we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to deception, to the seeking of wealth, the seeking of acclaim um, in our church bodies, whether in our leadership or in our constituency. We should hold one another to higher things than that, that instead of seeking acclaim, we seek to make much of the Lord. Instead of seeking wealth, we seek generosity. And that instead of deception, we seek integrity and honesty in all things, even when it doesn't look so good for us. So let's apply that. God takes sin seriously. Let's take it seriously as well. Second thing is believers will experience punishment. Um, I said we don't have to be afraid that God's going to strike us down dead. I I believe that is true, but there is punishment for sin. There are con- there are natural consequences. There are supernatural consequences. Uh, I, a natural consequence, I'd say, is if um, you gossip about someone, there are natural consequences to that. There may be a lack of trust in that group. There may be some ostracism. Uh, God doesn't have to supernaturally superintend that that consequence will exist. It's kind of a natural way that we're wired. And I do believe that God uses those natural consequences. He could use the natural consequences from gossiping to help teach us that, you know, we shouldn't be gossiping because there are consequences naturally. And then also it's something that God has commanded us against. Now, I do believe there are also punishments that are supernatural. There are consequences that are supernatural And it gets a little more tricky to kind of discern what those are because we can easily find ourselves in a rut where we are trying to explain things away because they're supernatural consequences. And and it can be really damaging. If I believe that every time I get sick, every time I get hurt, every time something bad happens to someone I know, uh, that that's God supernaturally judging me, then I can start to feel like, God is really punishing me every time something bad happens. Whereas we know that there are, there are just trials in life. There's, they're a result of sin as a whole, that sin exists in the world, but that they're not, bad things aren't necessarily tied to always a specific sin that uh, God is specifically punishing. So we have to be really, uh, we have to be really careful, especially I think when we try to call those things out in somebody else's life, that can be really, really murky water um, to suggest that something bad happening to someone is a supernatural consequence, a supernatural punishment that God's bringing down. Uh, that can bring a lot of hurt and I don't think is is really justifiable. Um, it is 
very subjective. Um, but the reality is whether we realize it or not in the moment, and maybe that is something that God brings to mind for something that you're going through, there are supernatural consequences for our sin. And so just like Ananias and Sapphira experienced punishment, um, we also experience punishment. Believers experience punishment, uh, even though, again, I stand by, it's probably not what um, that God is going to strike us down dead, but there are still supernatural consequences. And knowing that we'll experience punishment is a little bit scary, but also we know that the the end result, whether you're uh, a parent punishing a child or God is bringing punishment in our lives, that ultimately it's for our good. Uh, punishment is an opportunity for us to say, this thing that I did has bad consequences. I need to redirect to something that's good. And God does that for us. And he says in his scripture, if you weren't my children, I wouldn't discipline you. But because he loves us, his discipline comes out of his love. So consequences that we experience, uh, punishment that we experience based on our sin is really a way of the Lord helping direct us in the right direction or to send us in the right direction uh, to follow him instead of to follow our sinful passions. So that's the second thing that we should apply from the story. The third thing that we should apply from the story is the folly of deception, wealth, and acclaim. Um, there is just no good to be found in lying. There's no good to be found in seeking wealth. And there's no good to be found in seeking acclaim or praise from others. As far as deception, there's not really necessarily a good deception. But as far as wealth, wealth in and of itself is not evil. Acclaim in and of itself is not evil. God has granted many people wealth so that they can use it as an opportunity for his kingdom. Um, people are sometimes given a claim for things that they have done that are good, even though their in purpose wasn't to receive that praise. Big thing is, what are we, what are we seeking? What do we do with it? If we're seeking wealth and acclaim, we know that we're on the wrong path. If we use wealth and acclaim for our own ends, we know we're on the wrong path. But if we receive a claim, we can use it as an opportunity, a platform to give glory to God and give a claim to God who truly deserves it. If we have wealth, we can use it as an opportunity to bring glory to God, to give to others, to do good. Um, and again, with deception, there's not really a good form uh, of lying necessarily. So that's one that we see the folly in it. But when we're seeking wealth, we're seeking a claim. We also see the folly in that or if we're using that for our own good. So we see something we should apply from the story is the folly that comes from lying, from seeking wealth, from seeking praise from others. And then the last thing I want to talk about that we should, should apply from this story is we should recognize God's grace to us. Like I mentioned earlier, Ananias and Sapphira are not super sinners. They are not the w most wicked that have ever existed. Um, they're they're people like you and I. Um, again, like I said, we, you can probably think of a dozen examples of times when you've lied, you've sought wealth, you've sought the praise of people, and we're still standing. Um, that's God's grace. That's God's grace to us that he is willing to uh, see us and instead of seeing our sin to see the work of, of Jesus. If we've believed in Jesus' work on the cross, then we have already had that punishment taken for us. Ultimately, he took the ultimate punishment of death for us. And God shows us grace daily, even in the midst of the exact same sins that Ananias and Sapphira committed. Uh, we can rest in the fact that Jesus' work was enough. 
And we should be really grateful that God shows us the grace that he does. Because it's only by grace that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, willingly gave up his life on the cross and rose again so that not only could we be forgiven of our sins, but that we could ultimately live with him again one day too. And this is, it's entirely possible. Like I talked about earlier that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. It's entirely possible when we get to see Jesus that they will be there, that they will be there with him. Um, again, we've, we've talked about it. It's not hundred percent sure. It's not our job to decide who's saved, who's not. Um, but we have to realize that it's entirely possible that they'll be there in heaven. So ultimately, even though this uh, punishment was very severe, that doesn't undo the work of Christ uh, in their lives or in ours when we experience punishment, whether those kind of more natural consequences or supernatural consequences. This story should give be an opportunity for us to realize the grace that God has shown to us, even as we see um, him dole out a punishment that's very severe. So I hope that talking about this has been helpful. I hope that um, it's not a reason for you to question the goodness of God, but instead to um, just reflect on the grace that God has shown to you, that he's shown to all of us, and the grace that he's ultimately shown through Jesus' death and resurrection. And hopefully, as if this comes up in, in your normal life, as you explain it to kids, that it can be an opportunity to turn them toward God's ultimate grace too. And instead of focusing on and fearing what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, rather looking at the goodness and graciousness that he's shown to us in our lives, that ultimately he is the one who should receive uh, the focus of all our wealth. He should receive all acclaim and that because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to live in deception and dishonesty, but we can be honest about who we are because God already knew it. Jesus died on the cross. He already knew it. Um, he died while we were still sinners. We don't have anything to hide from him. The only thing we have to get is forgiveness um, and, and healing from what we've done. So hope this was helpful. And I, I just hope that this will point you toward the grace and goodness of God. Thank you.